Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking investing and developing in renewable energy projects in the emerging market. As the developed markets become increasingly competitive and indeed project availability dries up, these types of projects are going to be a key source of growth and also a source of increasing payoffs with the voluntary carbon markets. However, operating in emerging and frontier markets is always highly complex. Often there isn't any kind of regulatory frameworks to support sustainable and renewable projects themselves. To discuss this is our guest, Francis Ogboma. Francis has a career in energy trading as well as in project development in renewables and has recently written a book called Developing Sustainable Energy Projects in Emerging Markets. As always, if you enjoy the episode and want to support the podcast, please leave us a positive review or five-star rating on the platform you listen on. Francis, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. We're talking ultimately, I guess, with the backdrop of your new book, Developing Sustainable Energy Projects in Emerging Markets. First off, I mean, there's two big questions there. Why energy and why sustainable when it comes to emerging markets? Can you tackle the the first part first? Why is there a need, is there a demand for energy generation projects in the emerging markets? Okay, yes. So I'll tackle that question in, in the following way. I think that energy is a fundamental building block of any economy. Anything that we see around us, both man-made and natural, can be defined in terms of the energy it took to produce it. And uh, for me, in there's a clear correlation, isn't there, between GDP and uh, energy production and access to a sustainable and uh, affordable energy. Is the emerge, our emerging markets, frontier markets in need of investment in energy? What's the general state of their energy security today? Yes, they very much are. And if you look at the traditional PPA power purchase agreement based model of uh, utility scale fossil fuel type projects, uh, these have always been traditionally very hard to finance because they are very large and so require a substantial amounts of financing to, to be deployed. Uh, that in itself requires substantial amounts of uh, funding to take place at the project development stage. And in terms of then deploying that finance, there is a, a whole raft of due diligence and other efforts to make sure that it, uh, ultimately it's a bank, bankable project. What that means in reality is these projects are very hard to actually put in place in countries that struggle with economic development that do not have the most robust of balance sheets, if you want to, for lack of a better phrase. And so that's really why in those countries that we tackle in the book, we are really looking at those with an energy deficit, which has a direct correlation with their own economic situation. Yeah. And there's also, I guess, the incentive side of that as well, which we'll, we'll sort of probably finish up on, but is in the developed markets, most of the easy opportunities have been taken already. And a lot of the um, emergent utilities or 
even energy companies in general, I should say, are seeking opportunity in more challenging locations because there is that need and there are potential returns. Absolutely, yes. And we tackle that in the book as well. There are big uh, European or other from other country-based um, utility companies that casting their net wider and, and looking at emerging markets such as South Africa, investing in those markets substantially with their own renewable uh, energy project development teams. And so, and, and these are looked at quite closely in the book because what you have here is a departure from the traditional independent type of project developer to something where you have a huge balance sheet sitting behind a team of project developers that can scour the globe looking for these emerging uh, market opportunities. Yes. And, and so the second aspect of the book is obviously focusing on sustainable development. Can you first define that for us in the context of UN goals, etc., but also why that is crucial, not just from an environmental standpoint, but also from a, a support and a, you know, a broader organizational goal standpoint? For us, for any project to be sustainable, it has to cover the aspects of being beneficial to the society in which that project uh, is located, the uh, environmental aspects of involved, and of course, that those of uh, the financial and economic aspects. These have to be sustainable over the life of the project and beyond. And I think taking the wider context, the wider importance of sustainability you know, following the 2008 global financial crisis and more recent coronavirus pandemic, I think people are, and the world at large is, uh, is gearing up for a tr fundamental transformation of economic activity across the globe. And more and more investor funds and large um, financial institutions and corporates are looking towards the future very much with a goal of sustainability in mind. And so for me, the timing of the book, I, I, I feel in this respect is, is quite um, apropos. And so that really for me is what sustainability is about. And when you look at an organization looking to invest in emerging markets, frontier markets, you know, 20 years ago, that was in big coal plants or whatever it might be by the likes of Enron, et cetera. Is sustainability as a feature of the project now a sine qua non like you know is this the, the social license to operate or or is it just a, a there still remains a choice and as much an ethical choice as an economic one yeah that's a great question i would say very much so that it's a sine qua non i would say that uh, most credible lenders will not look uh, to project finance any type of project unless there is a a well-defined and well-prepared um, environmental and social impact assessment behind that project, which in turn will contain your environmental sustainability management plan. And uh, that is being increasingly uh, scrutinized by lenders and, and investors in general. We talk now about the increasing usage of the term ESG type investing, and uh, that will, in, in a very short space of time, in my mind, become the, just the, an absolute necessity for any type of investment, any type of transaction, even. 
Is that very much, and this might be an unfair question, but is that very much a, I guess, a Western standpoint or a Western investment model? I, I just asked that in the context of Belt and Road, China policy. Do you see the same ESG expectations and standards there, or are we talking a completely different set of values? And even, I guess, you know, it's a very different economic NPV type model as well. That's another great question. I think it isn't the same the world over. And yes, uh, I would say that in, from a Western perspective, the ESG criteria is uh, perhaps higher as a requirement than in other parts of the world. In fact, in the book, in one of our case studies, we look at a project, a sustainable energy project, where the, um, the developer involved was very uh, frank in saying that um, ESG type aspects or certain aspects of it were not at the top of the, the list of priorities. And so, yes, I, I would agree with you on that, that it is uh, very much a, driven by a Western kind of um, what the Western criteria and requirement for ESG in any type of investment. So one final piece of the puzzle before we sort of move on, we've got the Y energy, big deficit, huge need across the globe. And the sustainability part, not only you know, tackling climate change, which is a global issue, but also actually in order to meet organizations' goals and particularly their stakeholder goals, you need that bit and will increasingly need to do so as well. What is, you talk in the book about emerging versus frontier markets. What rubric did you use to sort of separate those two out and what are some of the key differences? That's a tough question. And, and uh, in the book, we have uh, an approach that uh, is based on what is the common understanding of what frontier and emerging markets are like. And first of all, they're different to developed markets. And how are they different? Well, they're seen as more risky in simple terms. And staying with those simple terms, you can say that um, frontier markets are seen as more risky than emerging ones. So, for example, you could say that uh, for us, the BRICS would be classed as emerging slash developed markets in, in many respects. But in other markets that, uh, such as Vietnam, we could say that they are frontier slash emerging. And so the, the definition will shift from, from different, uh, if you look from different perspectives, but uh, by and large, I think we'd say that uh, frontier markets are more risky than emerging ones. Okay, so I guess it's a little bit more of a sort of, uh, you know it when you see it type thing, but not necessarily hard and fast criteria. Can you walk, I mean, the, the essence of the book is essentially, these are the various hurdles that you face when dealing with emerging markets. Some of those hurdles are gonna be common to any project in anywhere in the world. Can you, and, and those obviously the hurdles, particularly to the energy markets, and then including the sustainability goals as far as possible. Can you walk us through the, the hurdles that you face, which all organizations are going to have to face if they do want to expand, I guess is the premise as well, is that if the opportunities in the developed markets are highly competitive and already filled, then they are going to be driven. And we've seen this over the last decade, they're going to be driven to these emerging markets. The first big hurdle is really complexity. Can you try and simplify what you mean by complexity? What, what does that represent when you're tackling projects in emerging markets? I would approach that question in the following way. So let's take an example of us having to develop a project in a more mature developed market, say like the UK, for example. 
where I'm based. So you have distinct steps in the project development phase for any renewable project. They, and they can follow in the following sequence. So firstly, you're doing conceptual structuring. So you're really looking at the technology, the site, uh, what uh, feedstock uh, would be available, other sort of relevant sources relating to that in terms of the concept and making sure that concept works. Does it all fit together? Is there a business case to therefore go to a further stage of committing further resources to develop the project? Then you'd have perhaps an engagement with your uh, an offtaker or potential counterpart at def definition and negotiations around, for example, a power purchase agreement. Uh, following that, there'd be contract structuring, negotiation, and then following that, again, so application for permissions or whatever is required around that. And then from there, you can then, once you've gathered all of that information, it all gets bundled up in an information memorandum and you would then start um, presenting that IM to both investors and, and lenders to, to get the project uh, completed. Now, if you take that sequence of events or say stages of, um, of actions and take that into a frontier or an emerging market context, I've kind of just described what is a, a sign, clearly signposted roadmap. And in these, in many of these other countries, you do not have roadmaps or signposts from agencies or government entities around building or developing such projects. So that you can summarize the difficulty uh, with that around the lack of regulation around the actual activity, let alone tariffs or offtake agreements. You know, a lack of technical understanding with respect to renewable energy in general. And I, by that, I would mean uh, a lower uh, level of technical understanding at all levels of whomever you're engaging with, whatever the stakeholder may be. A difficulty in eventually procuring technical equipment if you get to that stage. And then the challenges of, of then engaging with local financial institutions who may or may not have a good understanding of the of the technology being used of the type of project that you're trying to develop. And even if they did have that, there is that depth question of the depth of the financing markets in the particular country that could be a, a challenge as well. So that's, if you like, a short way of answering that question of yours, Paul. But it, it's, uh, I could go on much longer. Yeah, and let's dig into it, because the first one you talk about there is that lack of regulatory framework. We're not even talking about the tariffs, the various constructs, policies that support renewable development, right? There's, you know, we're not talking about established carbon markets or feed-in tariffs or whatever it might be. There's even a lack of regulation about in some of these markets about construction, remediation, environmental standards, etc. How do you navigate that when you don't have that backdrop? And I imagine that becomes really a concern when you've got other in bidders in competing projects that don't have the same self-imposed expectations because all those things are doing are rising costs. Yeah. So I think how you navigate that is as the developer, as the principal sponsor of the project, you have to take on the role of educator and if you like booster of the project uh, at um, with respect to all of the engagements that you make with all of the potential stakeholders involved. Uh, that, so by that, what I would mean is that, so for instance, if you had exclusive access to a particular site that was suitable 
to develop a biomass project, for example, and uh, there isn't any regulatory framework in place for that, but you as a developer are fairly confident that if you were to develop a biomass planted at this location, it would be a benefit. The, the, you would have uh, to spend an inordinate amount of time educating all of the stakeholders involved. So not just your own particular offtaker or the supplier of feedstock, but more importantly, that at the government level. And you, you, you very quickly find that you're engaging on a lot of different agencies and effectively helping them build the regulatory framework that you need to push the project through to, to financial close and eventually through to operations. Yeah. We'll come on to this, I think, later and talk about the payoff. I assume some of the necessity that's driving those behaviours are that a lot of the value of these projects can come from the voluntary carbon markets, meeting the offset criteria of the various standards agencies. That does keep, I guess, a certain level of rigour in the process. No, absolutely. And uh, you make a good point about getting standards agencies involved. I would definitely um, seek to engage with internationally recognized uh, standards agencies as early on in the project as possible, particularly in the case of, uh, of the voluntary carbon markets where, yes, you are absolutely correct that um, there is potential for a lot of projects to get and to, to have that as a market for them. You mentioned stakeholders there and just looking at you know, our shared notes. One of these ideas is kind of these hidden stakeholders. Can you just talk to that a bit? Sure. By hidden stakeholders, what I meant by that was that uh, if we were to take the case of a, a development in the, in the developed world project in countries with uh, already substantial renewable energy portfolios, you, effectively you, there are signposted uh, roadmaps for most projects. And so you know you have to go to this agency for your permit um, that relates to um, an environmental aspect. You know you have to go to this other agency for a permit that relates to health and safety and so on and so forth. And in, in the markets that we deal with in the book, there there is absolutely no signposting. So that's what we really meant by hidden stakeholders. So the amount of research that you have to do by yourself as the developer really is a challenge. And so the idea being that there are hidden stakeholders, but your task as the developer is to find and to engage with them and possibly educate them and carry them along with you through the life of your of the project. Yeah. The other aspect you mentioned is financing, which obviously has a much greater level of complexity when you're talking about emerging and frontier markets, not least because I, I imagine you're always going to have to at some point work with local commercial banks, not just the international ones you're used to do, working with. Yes, indeed. And so in most of the, with one of the um, constraints around dealing with local banks is uh, that or around currency and uh, currency convertibility, because in the project finance uh, sphere, everything currency of de facto currency is US dollar. And in many countries, there are, in terms of convertibility of the local currency into USD, that some banks struggle. And so getting, that's just one aspect in which uh, local banks are, uh, would be a challenge. But another aspect would be that they don't have the capacity 
not just in terms of balance sheet, but it also in terms of uh, technical expertise, the deal transaction management expertise that's required to undertake these types of projects and, and finance them. So that's all has to be taken into consideration as a developer. By no means is it a deal breaker, but it's something that we highlight as a challenge that needs to be recognized. Yeah. So do you mention the local on, on ground technical expertise, contractors, and obviously that everything takes longer when it comes to logistics. The key part that I think is certainly relevant to our audience is for the most part in the developed world, you, you have a market construct available that allows you to price your output and in many cases lock in offtake agreements. How does that work in emerging and frontier markets? And uh, is that really one of the biggest challenges that there is? Because I think everything ultimately depends on the surety of you being able to sell the power in this case or on the other side. Absolutely. So with the offtake agreements, especially long-term, long-term ones that need to be supported with a creditworthy partner, uh, that clearly is uh, the main if you like, the main risk factor for developing these types of uh, projects. And so what, what in my experience on, on these projects is that uh, you would have a local utility. Let's take that example uh, of a local utility that's, uh, that is backed or owned by the state government and that uh, owned state government would not be capable of backing your offtake agreement to the extent that you require at that point, then you'd have to get the international banks or DFIs, development financial institutions in, involved. And uh, the likes of uh, many of those have um, instruments and uh, products that they offer to project developers that can backstop and, and boost the credit worthiness of the guarantor or the parent uh, of the offtake. So that's uh, certainly what um, I've uh, come across as being the most common means of, of, of boosting the offtake agreements uh, creditworthiness. In the book, I guess you tie all of these things together with a couple of case studies. Well, I guess one in particular. Can you give us a sense of how that case study and just bring in some of these aspects? Yes, the case study on Riga was an interesting one because although it was, uh, it was uh, project financed, so most of the financing came from a local, local bank there was no long-term offtake agreement. So it's a merchant plant that has been uh, project financed. And so that was one, the main reason why I, I included it as a case study, because I think it was a, it shows, it was a testament to the, the developer's own expertise in developing projects of that type. Um, it wasn't the first project that they had developed. Uh, and secondly, they, they knew that market well enough to be able to give enough confidence to the lenders that their output would be successfully offtaken at the uh, weekly auctions that take place at the in the market there so that's why i uh, i particularly like that that case study for it uh, for the fact that there were there was no bankable long-term offtake agreement sitting behind it i wanted to sort of zoom back in on the payoffs right these are incredibly risky, time-consuming projects to do. Why should organizations be doing these? Well, for me, the payoff is pretty clear, despite the risks uh, that you so rightly point, uh, point out. I think that across the board, as we transition the, our energy systems globally, 
there will there is an increase there will be an increased demand for renewable energy so fossil fuels will their usage will 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 gradually will reduce and so there's that imperative and that's uh, linked of course to the issue of climate change and the contribution of fossil fuels to uh, global warming so that for me is the first main driver secondly it's around the technology involved so lowering of costs of technology will take place as more and more projects are developed and we've seen that um, quite uh, most um, evidently in the in this in the cost of solar pv panels the past decade and the reduction huge reduction in in those costs uh, driven by by the demand and driven by uh, the production that um, uh, has uh, has reached uh, economies of scale so both of those aspects i think would uh, drive the the payoff uh, and of course we tie in as we did earlier on renewable energy projects with the voluntary carbon markets and the demand for the voluntary carbon markets will get to a point where it can't be met by projects in the developed part of the world. And so these developing, these emerging frontier markets will become more and more attractive just off the back of the the growth and demand for voluntary carbon markets. And are we seeing that today? I mean, it's very laudable, right, and crucial from a societal level, from an externality standpoint, that we tackle climate change and in the process do lower the costs of these technologies. Are the voluntary carbon markets and other payoffs sufficient for individual companies to really start leaning into this? And are we seeing that? Has there been an exponential rise in these types of projects or is this still quite nascent in reality? I would say it's quite nascent in reality, not least for the reason that the voluntary carbon market still needs to organize itself and reach uh, a level of consensus that um, all stakeholders buy into. With that, I would uh, recall the work that um, Mark Carney is leading on in the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. And that work is is a work in progress. But uh, the idea behind that is to is really about arriving at a consensus for a voluntary carbon market. So how how do you agree on a market that is not compulsory and what qualifies, for example, as a project that can generate carbon credits? Um, uh, who qualifies on the other side? Who qualifies to be eligible to purchase or participate in voluntary carbon markets? See, so there are a lot of questions that are still needing to be answered. And the consensus... Uh, needing to be reached before we can say that voluntary carbon markets are firmly established and that there is a a clear price transparency, clear transparency on who can participate, what projects qualify, which projects don't. uh, And that will, of course, then lead to um, the the, the kind of um, the the, uh, credibility that would be needed for the market to really take off in earnest. But I have no doubt that they'll get I think the sort of the crucial question really for me and to get your take on is you've looked at these types of projects, you've seen successful ones and unsuccessful ones, you've done them in your own career. What do you think really are the, I guess, the, the key drivers of success, that kind of 5% 
behaviors or access to knowledge that some projects have that means they go ahead that whereas others fail like what what are the key determinators of success do you as organizations start to think and 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 assess these projects that get get put in front of them i think that number one the Riga case study really points to this number one is having a team that has a very very high level of understanding of the ground truths in the uh, markets that you are uh, looking to operate in. I think that's uh, number one. I think you'd also need to be quite technology agnostic in that respect and be able to have a, a team that is well-versed in different or several different types of technologies. Uh, I'll then say that uh, with that, uh, you can have, you'd have to have a level of flexibility of over your geographies, how many geographies your particular team is willing to look at, because uh, uh, as we all know, that and then, and at any point in the project uh, phase of development, you can hit the stop button. At that point, you're going to have to have a few projects in the portfolio that you can then, if you like, you use as a way of mitigating that binary stop-start risk that you have with projects of this nature. And and finally, I think I would say in a team, team that is multilingual and um, also able to deal with stakeholders at different levels. So from the low, lower level functionaries to higher level ministerial level and above even in different uh, geographies to be able to effectively manage the relationship with the stakeholders at the different levels of the hierarchy of that stakeholder. So I, I would summarize it that way. It's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, when you think about that, existing energy companies in the fossil world, right, are, that's where that skill set sits, who are familiar with deep knowledge of local markets, the ability to handle the different levels, of, you know, understand the different stakeholders and work with the different stakeholders. And yes, technology is important, but you've got to be relatively technology agnostic. And in general, particularly with regards to wind and solar, they are more simple technologies in general to understand than, you know, and to manage and operate than, than a refinery or a, or a coal fire plant or whatever it might, a combined gas cycle plant, right? So it's kind of probably going to be the same skill sets that were doing this 15 years ago with Enron or whomever, the BPs of the world and so forth, that, that will be doing this in the future. No, I completely agree with you, Paul. A lot, a lot of these... Um... You know, these skill sets that we speak of already present um, were part of the capabilities of traditional energy companies, if we call them fossil fuel-based ones. And so that pivot from a fossil fuel-based portfolio to a renewable-based portfolio shouldn't be a, so, so difficult for a lot of uh, organizations. Yeah. And uh, I guess the backdrop to this is obviously, as you say, where, where these voluntary carbon efforts go. What drove you to write the book and, and what's your hopes for it? I suppose when I first started in the project development game, there wasn't a, any book out there that was written by practitioners for practitioners. The project finance or project development type books that were out there were mainly sort of academic type works or books that focused say on the banking community or the ESG side perspective. And so 
for me, with all of this knowledge that I built up over the years and it was in my head, I, I, I felt that it was it would be good to get it out in, in black and white and to share that knowledge with the wider world. And so the publishers that I've worked with to release the book are very much um, focused on sort of college level, business school level students. But I, I think it's uh, also a book that can be appreciated by the practitioner. So I, I really just targeted those the, those two sectors in the uh, segments in the uh, in writing. I certainly enjoyed it. So, where can people find the book, and in what formats? The book is published by the Business Expert Press, and it can be purchased from their website, either in an ebook form, uh, in hard copy, and it's also also available on Amazon. So, um, please, I would encourage your listeners to. To at least check it out, or check out the uh, the extracts, and and definitely uh, look forward to engaging with anyone who wants to follow up. Yeah, excellent. Well, I, I do think, you know, for the record, from my standpoint, that existing leaders in the commodity market, you know, this is going to be an increasing topic over the next decade. Whether that's their organisations investing and doing the project development themselves or having these projects come to them for investment and having a knowledge of the the increased complexity or at least a knowledge of the questions to ask and uh, perhaps identify what might be some of the key indicators of success or failure is useful. And as you say, for the next generation coming through, it's probably going to be less about doing oil exploration in frontier markets and more about renewable projects in frontier markets, all of which are present huge challenges. Um, so I really appreciated your uh, time and wish you great success with the book. Thanks very much, Paul. Really appreciate your time as well. And uh, good luck with the, with the rest of the podcast. I really enjoyed Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider, and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.